The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hi, this is uh, Dr. Mary Lang, and unfortunately, Terry Aranga will not be with us today. So I will be taking her place. Um, I am uh, the, uh, the director of Beacon Day School and also associate professor at Azusa Pacific. And we are going to be talking about uh, design considerations and uh, homes for adults with um, developmental disabilities because this is a, a pressing need in our society. And I'd like to welcome Kathy Purple Cherry. And Kathy is an architect um, who specializes in this area. Is that correct, Kathy? That's correct. Good morning. Oh. How are you? Or it's I'm morning fine. on the East Thank Coast you. and afternoon on the West Coast. No, it's morning for you and it's afternoon for me. Yes, 9 o'clock here. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am very impressed that you have taken on this challenge of of helping design and uh, appropriate um, homes and facilities for people with developmental disabilities. And what what are the design considerations? What do you what do you have to take into account as you uh, go through the process, the design process? Well, it's interesting. Um, let me back up just for a second. Um, I am the mother of a transitioning 21-year-old today, child on the autism spectrum, wow. and I am the sibling of a 58-year-old brother with Down syndrome. And so over the years, I have obviously been um, around the population of special needs, and it's just a component of my lifestyle. So when I am working with any group with regards to a residential program, I would tell you the first out-of-the-box thing that we're trying to understand is really the present and future vision of an organization in terms of how it wants to grow the residential home itself and how many individuals are seeking to congregate live in a setting and then the next steps that we're looking at, obviously, is if those individuals are co-ed or single sex and if they need to somewhat have their own isolated living areas that help support any behaviors that might be unique to the individuals that are going to be within the home. I know that you can imagine that one of the hottest issues currently is really how to do all that, but then fund it. And so as we get 
further on in our discussions. I'll talk to you about some of the things that are going on. Well, that that is um, <laughs> yes. Okay, so in in the vision, let's start yeah. with the vision. Yeah. Do you, do you have any preference? I mean, I know there are larger communities, and there are individual uh, group homes, for lack yeah. of a better word. Yeah. And uh, since you had so much experience, do you find it? Is there a preference? Um, you know, do you find it better for? Uh, let's just use the uh, um, older population of individuals that have autism uh, spectrum disorder. And do you find that people with disabilities live better in community settings or uh, where they have they can meet their needs in a community? Not to say that they don't go out into the broader community, or would it is it better? that they live in a a traditional residential community. Is there any preference for that? You know, I'm going to answer that in a really broad way. I think that every individual obviously should be entitled to selecting the type of living environment in which they want to live in. And I can and I definitely know that across the country parents feel um, strongly about both opposite ends, being full inclusion into the community or physically living within a community setting of special needs. I do think that what is accurate to say is that even if the residential setting is a community setting, and to me that could be defined as four group homes on a cul-de-sac that happen to abut each other, or that could be defined as mm -hmm. a dormitory type setting on a single piece of land regardless of which of the two of those settings residentially where maybe the congregate living might increase to say numbers of 12, 14, 16, 20 individuals, what is definitely still true is that um, inclusion into the community through workforce programs and other mm -hmm. social opportunities I think is key to the continued success of the autistic population. Um, what I find uniquely different between the special needs population that is not on the autism spectrum versus the autism spectrum population is that, it, and I and please know that when I talk about this, I'm going to speak specifically to the LD or the DD group where mm -hmm. it is a lower functioning developmentally right. group of population. I think what is true is that a great body of the autism group, it are definitely um, higher, higher IQ functioning levels, mm -hmm. and m most parents want their children to have the opportunities in the community that they see as their child's potential. Mm -hmm. And I think that's creating a new movement that that is all about this full reinforcing this full inclusion setting. Now let me contradict some of the things I just said, and let me say this: What is also true is that because the autism population is more often than not at a higher functioning level, many states and most states are not funding the bulk of our population for housing. Mm -hmm. 
So well, I great, guess I'm not surprised at that. Yeah. And the yeah. greatest challenge is how to create a more economical setting for residential independence for the autistic group. And that then translates into congregate living. Because what is true is that if you can cross-share staff across Mm -hmm. 16 to 20 individuals to give the flexibility needed to support those individuals, you can do it at less cost, private pay, when you congregate live more individuals together. And if you were going to... I'm sure you've seen this across the country. If you were to um, develop something like this and people were private paying, and I obviously have run into people who will say, you know, that they can private pay. And I've also run into people who say, you know, I'm totally, you know, that are more impoverished and that they're uh, more relying on state and federal funding. Yes. what is the average cost per month to, let's say you had a community of, um, let's say you were shooting for 25 people in this community. I've heard that uh, it's it's quite costly and it can um, be like three or $4,000 a month. Well, and I would say that, hold on one second, I was just doing a little bit of math for one second so that I could tell you, hold on one second, I'm doing a little bit of math on something. Okay, Um, I wanted to run some math on a particular program that's going on right now. So here's what I see. If you can get the program built, literally Mm -hmm. completely built, mortgage-free, land paid off, to where you carry Mm -hmm. no mortgage debt and let's Mm -hmm. make a project that houses 20 people be built depending upon how that project is developed. Those construction costs could run anywhere between, say, three to six million dollars depending upon land costs and locations. Mm -hmm. If it can be all built, it still seems to cost somewhere between 45,000 and 60,000 a year. Mm to care for an individual from a staffing standpoint. If you divide that 60,000 times 12, you're talking about $5,000 a month. And so security is only obviously offsetting approximately Mm -hmm. $550 plus possibly food stamps. So (laughs) what I do see happening is um, we're beginning working on a project in the Arizona area, which I will keep off the record for right now, where we recognize that there is a shortfall that will need to be um, offset. So we are reaching out and trying to investigate what um, business venture, what business model can be created that truly will offset those ongoing costs to help Mm self-sustain because unless you're privileged to be able to get a large endowment to continue to fund operating costs, you could have this three plus 3,500 plus upwards monthly costs necessary in order to support the individuals. One of the things that universities are beginning to do slowly is And I think it's very clever. I went to the state of Maryland to discuss this with them, but 
the problem is until we see federal change, we won't see state change. And so mm-hmm. universities are wanting to create these small residential programs on their campuses and then integrate the staff coming out of the psychology departments, which mm. is a pretty fabulous way to think about offsetting mm-hmm. uh, some of those labor costs mm-hmm. because it's training for those students. Another very creative thing going on, and this happens to apply to the project in Arizona, is churches are beginning to give land to these programs. And Mm -hmm. obviously, um, when a church does that, I would hope that obviously the church's thoughts would be that they'd also create a disabilities ministry Mm-hmm. To where there be a component of um, volunteer and obviously financial support. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that happen in a very, very large way in the state of Virginia. There is a wow. respite home that was built by the congregation, mm-hmm. and uh, they have to fundraise the shortfall that happens every year, which is well over a million dollars, so it's a pretty amazing program. But what most parents want, and I and everybody listening will understand this. I, I think we have to take. Do we oh, have to take sorry. a break? They play okay. music in my ear. Okay. Then I'm help me, and I'm going to follow up with one thought when we come back. Okay. Okay. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260 day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling. Whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Hi, I'd like to welcome you back. Uh, this is Dr. Mary Lang and Kathy Purple Cherry, and we are talking about uh, um, housing for developmentally uh, challenged adults, and, and we were on the discussion of how to possibly fund these projects. 
Would you like to continue, Kathy? Yes, hi. Thank you very much. And just so that the listeners understand, I am an architect in Annapolis, Maryland, and my firm focuses on environments for adults and children with disabilities or special needs. I am the mother of a 21-year-old today on the spectrum, autism spectrum, and the sibling of a 58-year-old with Down syndrome. Um, What we were talking about was being the focus mostly of parents and groups, they, they, you know, it's one thing to build the project. So I think that it does not concern uh, most parents to think about how to pull together, be it $150,000 each or $300,000 each to create a single group home living setting or buying a structure that they could fully pay for, it's the operating costs and the ongoing um, support staff for the residential program that seems to be the challenge that our spectrum is often not residentially funded for. Mm -hmm. I am blessed to announce that my son is a fully, fully funded child, both for residential and adult day programs. So I am thrilled at the age of 21 that I have been uh, supported by a great team to get to that place. But I do understand that a majority of the population does not have that kind of funding. In our office right now currently, one thing I was going to mention, Mary, is that we are actually trying to develop, we've spoken to two national modular home companies, and we are trying to develop a true modular where it truly fits within the mathematics of a 14-foot wide, 60-foot long, and can come completely um, transported on a trailer. It can't be made out of one modular, but we're trying to work with four dimensions, um, four separate pods Mm -hmm. to create a modular structure. And we are doing that internally ourselves, not for any one particular client. And then we're going to have a national modular company cost estimate estimate it for us because I'm mm-hmm. hoping to try to get a structure that can support four individuals in the under $300,000 square foot, uh, $300,000 total cost. And that's wow, one that's of our terrific. firm's goal is to try to figure out something that through mass use could be created so that it can just be used by people who are looking to build a single home for four individuals. So um, so it's, well, uh, the, it's the funding piece that actually um, I think is the piece that challenges most people. There are There's great vision, obviously, across the country going on about all different types of environments and settings. As an architect, when I come along, what I'm really looking at is I'm looking how to take those visions or settings, which might be an agricultural community, and actually orient or master plan um, first site to make um, clear connections so that the wayfinding is reinforced by elements on the property mm-hmm. so that and to set structures in such a way to buffer them from, um, say, living environments to be buffered from areas of commotion or a lot of activity so sure. that it doesn't cause a sensory overload for our kids. Mm-hmm. 
So that's kind of what I look at first. Then as I move more specifically into a single unit, because it might be a residential program consisting of multiple units, as I look at a single unit, then I'm going to look more specifically at a combination of um, how to create um, more kind of um, um, more um, uh, gosh more um, calmness within their immediate environment, more privacy, the ability to not have a visual connection through the house that can create um, opportunities for audiences, the ability to sound isolate now as we get more technical and more specific, not using certain materials so that they don't create, say, off-gassings that can stimulate um, sensory issues. Mm-hmm. So it goes from the big picture to the small picture. Well, I I know that uh, being a, a mother myself of a 30-year-old developmentally challenged um, adult, even in uh, people's homes, like uh, they have challenges with privacy, and um, I remember when I was looking and and having fantasies of living on the eastern shore, the concept was this great room um, concept, and everybody wanted a great room, and I I thought to myself, I think that's great, but, but then how does one really how do you? Because I, I couldn't see how I was going to fit my developmentally challenged daughter into the existing architectural plan. That was um, it. Was 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 it Lindahl who had those pre-existing wood uh, yeah. things? Yeah, and I I just couldn't see how it was going to work. So. Um, Openness for some is a good thing and yep. and not a good thing for other people. Well, and it's interesting because the sense of openness, it's not so much even specifically for the population as much as it is also for the rest of the family. Right. So I have a family of three children. There's a total of five of us, and the greatest conflicts that occurred within the home were amongst the siblings. Mm-hmm. And those challenges definitely are... A buffered when you have the ability to allow your special child to have his own area to create his own kind of um, hyper-focused obsessions. Uh, a lot of times the violence that happened in our own personal home was directly related to a violation of privacy of rights mm-hmm. between the siblings. So we just completed two group homes for the Benedictine School, and those homes are actually under construction. And how they work is that instead of thinking about a hall that feeds into two bedrooms, we actually made the hall a mini little living room. So while there is a great room and there is a large kitchen connected to the great room and there is a dining room that's open Mm -hmm. to the great room but it can be closed off, um, as you head into, quote-unquote, the hall that leads into a a cube of two bedrooms, that hall is a room that's approximately 12 by 14 and serves as the mini living room. Mm 
So obviously in your own home, if you could see your way to actually give up the master bedroom suite for your child, that's probably the best solution to find sanity for the rest of the family because that master bedroom suite is large enough to accommodate the gaming, living, sleeping, and separate bathroom bathroom quarters that makes mm-hmm. for the best um, kind of um, support to me of a child on the spectrum. It's funny because it's not so much that in my son's case that he needed that and nor did he get it, but it's actually more about allowing him to be able to not constantly, constantly cross paths with his two siblings. And it was that constant cross pathing, a path crossing and that constant sharing of spaces that created um, intense havoc in our household. So I would encourage people, if they're really experiencing a tremendous amount of conflict, try to think about your home and think about the one area that would allow your child to have a little bit more independence. One of the other things that we did, too, within our own home, and we stumbled upon it, um, if you could ask yourself, is there any portion of your house that you would feel perfectly comfortable with allowing your child to be in totally independent and unsupervised, and so I'll give you an example, then I would encourage you to do that because I think that it really does develop in our kids a greater potential for um, independence and and basically for them to um, learn how to take care of themselves. And so in our particular case, I was not comfortable with my son being ever left alone in the house because obviously there was Mm -hmm. a cooktop there. And a cooktop could lead to a poor judgment, and that could lead to a fire. But we do have a space that I was comfortable allowing my son to be independently in. And on occasion, we would give him that opportunity to literally be totally left alone for an hour, hour and Mm -hmm. a half. And Mm -hmm. now I would tell you that that has definitely contributed to my son being very independent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there one of the other things that... um, has come up, and I know this um, in the autism community is toxins and environmental issues yeah. that are uh, seem to be present everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I know even in Beacon Day School, we have um, we have to have um, appropriately organic, natural cleaning materials. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on that perhaps and how help people um if they're buying a home or if um it, uh like carpet is there a type of carpet or something that you would recommend that would be particularly helpful how to avoid mold and that kind of stuff um because in California mold obviously is a significant issue. So do you have any ideas on that? Yes. Um, First, let me just encourage the readers that if you go to the website and link over to the articles, you will actually see a large chart that we created that identifies materials that have historically, number one, been known to create challenges within any human body, including the neurotypical individuals. And then Mm -hmm. it 
goes further and discusses the materials that have been known to create irritants for the population specifically. It's interesting because um, my, I'm going to. My son is a a young man who is not impacted by um, elements within the environment or specifically impacted by diet, but I thousand percent appreciate and agree that it does have an impact on a lot of the mm-hmm. population. So I would say the blessing of the green movement or the lead movement, LED, is that it really drove a labeling of a lot of our products to be um, gas-free, VOC gas-free or Mm -hmm. toxin-free. So at the very basic of level, I would encourage individuals when they are doing any shopping for new materials to definitely look and see if the materials actually have a green rating system on them. and then further, there are specific um, gases that you would want to make sure that are not included in any components of the product. And again, this is unique to if your child has um, the, challenges. I think they're the, playing music in my ear. Well, again. remind me to come back to a discussion about a pool because okay. I have thoughts about these irritants further. Okay. Okay. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for New Reflections, featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Hi, this is Dr. Mary Lang from Beacon Day School, and I am on the phone with Kathy Purple Cherry, and we have been talking about toxins in the environment that may 
um, uh, disrupt the functioning of individuals with autism and related disorders. Kathy, well, would you like to continue? I sure would. And also as a side note, as we were talking about, obviously in our non-public settings, which my son was funded through the school system and currently is in non-funded settings, one of the greatest challenges is that obviously um, the collective parents of these kids really will struggle when it comes to figuring out the residential piece for adulthood. Mm -hmm. um, very few of us have the ability to private pay residential settings, and that would be inclusive of me, um, you know, and again, backing up, knowing that issue, I am really trying to figure out how to create an ADA accessible modular unit that can become more um, more um, affordable to the global population. So now let me go back to the irritants for a second. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I think that when we think about irritants in general, it's one thing obviously to breathe or inhale them, inhale them, and you're correct often the cleaning fluids or the new new materials kind of smell becomes an irritant. There are all different other types of irritants, just such as the low hertz on the fluorescent bulbs causing the flicker, which can be solved by using a much higher um, hertz bulb. But one thing that we recently, um, one thing that we definitely know is it's not just that the irritant can cause um, something that bothers a child with autism, but it's also more what then happens once the irritant is caused. So, for example, in my son's case, he's a picker. So if he were to actually obviously have something irritate or create some form of a rash, then he's going to make that rash tenfold worse because of his habit of picking. Right. So when we're looking at schools or programs that contain school um, pools, I'm sorry, swimming pools, right. we find that those swimming pools will both not be either um, salt or chlorine. They will actually be both. They need to be the chlorine level because of the bacteria within mm -hmm. the pools, but then they need to be the salt water because of the soothing element of the salt and what it does with the skin because the chlorine pools can be such an irritant to our kids that it can then trigger these other behaviors. So um, we are looking, obviously, at all different types of things when we are... Uh, developing a project. Wow. Okay. Um, you have just given us so much information. Is there um, land, I mean, I in thinking about this for a project here out in California, we've been thinking of everything from 50 acres to 20 acres. Is there an ideal um, size of uh, property that you need to have in order to have um, a, a community, I mean, and, and make it self-sustaining because I've seen, I've heard of a variety of communities that are reasonably self-sustaining with the support of a, a church, but I, I don't even know what size pro property to look at if I was, right. you know, in in trying to start this project. Sure, and it, and I'm uh, there's not a black and white answer that I'm gonna 
it's interesting to me because sometimes I honestly, sincerely forget that things that come to me as being easy because of what I do being an architect aren't necessarily so clear-cut. So I appreciate you asking me that question. So here's how it works. I'm going to give you a project that actually is in our state of Maryland. It's in the very early stages. You have to understand for your project what you want, say, 15, 20 years from now, and then you want to work backwards. And then you want to understand also if you want to support 100% private pay or if you want to support public funding. And I'll explain to you why that plays into it. So I'm going to take a local state of Maryland project. The project does see private pay. It doesn't have to be public, too. But in the short term, it wants to be residential with community. In the longer term, it wants to have a vocational day program piece. If everyone looks also at a concept that was started in the, I want to say, the 80s in Europe called co-housing, C-O-H-O-U-S-I-N-G, that somewhat plays into some of these communities because the concept is you create these smaller scale homes and then you create a congregate building. And that congregate building might have a main dining hall. It might have a larger living room. It may have a um, large kitchen. But back in each of the smaller dwellings, they can either be freestanding homes or they could, in fact, be a dormitory setting. Mm-hmm. So knowing whether you're what you are 20 years from now starts to drive how much land. So if you back up, obviously the zoning can support up to often five homes on one acre, depending upon a tight zoning situation, or it could support one home on 20 acres as you start to move into your agricultural areas. And then there's everything in between. So you have to understand your local zoning. So on the local project here, we understood our client's future and then far future desire. And we actually were able to determine that there was only one zone that supports both uses. So it turns out it's a residential zone. turns out that the residential zone would have supported the group housing and there would have been approximately six residential zones that would have supported this collective congregate housing, but only one of those residential zones supports the vocational piece. Hmm. So, So now you know where you kind of need to look And once you see that, then you can figure out your densities. As well, when a property is supported by public sewer, which is often the more expensive properties, versus private septic, which is the less expensive, typically rural areas, that then starts to also drive bigger or tighter land. Um, The last piece that I wanted to mention then plays into the funding piece. When you are looking at developing a project in which you make a conscious decision to accept funded, state-funded individuals, so if 
my child were 30 and he had residential funding and you wanted to be able to support him in your new program, you would need to make sure that you complied with your state's requirement with regards to the number of individuals that could live in congregate living. So what does that translate into? Let's say you're in a state that supports eight in congregate living, but that you wanted to create a residential program that supported 24 or three groups of eight. Mm -hmm. To support them residentially, then you would want to make sure that you subdivided or bought three lots so that each lot and house is in a different ownership. Because if it collectively goes onto one lot, it would be considered institutional setting by the state, and you will not be able to receive any funded kids. Wow. Okay. Well, let me, if you subdivide this. Yes. Um, do, do the parents, one of my, let me go take a step back. Okay. One of my concerns for these uh, types of projects is a lifelong living. One, you don't want your child um, to be there, and this happened to me personally, where my child was in a community, my daughter, my adult daughter was in a community for 13 years, and then after 13 years, when some issues came up and the administration changed in the uh, program, then it, it no longer worked. And my one of my big issues is how to manage things because I, I really, I, I hate to see somebody at 50 thrown out. And can you give me a little bit more specific as to why somebody would need to be thrown out? What happened dynamically that caused well, your daughter to have to change? Well, what happened was she was in a community um, for 13 years and everything was going fine and she also picks at her skin. Yep. especially when she gets anxious, and they took her to a physician who said she was anxious and needed to go to the psychiatrist, and um, they took her, and, uh, you know, knowingly or not knowingly, they just kept putting her on higher doses of medication and higher doses, and I happened to teach uh, psychopharmacology, so I know um, without naming the medication, that it, it you know, it, it, it's like, um, you know, one is good, two is better. Yeah. So they keep upping the dose, and by the time uh, she was at over the maximum dose, instead of being, you know, resolving her anxiety, she was totally disinhibited and would become more um, aggressive and assertive to those around her, and then they weren't, the the change in leadership uh, in this community wasn't able to back down and, and help solve the problem. Sure. So, so I would say that one of the things that I find that some of the communities that are in discussion. I, I think we just, oops. the music just played again, so I think we are at uh, a time to take a break. We are speaking with Kathy Purple Cherry, an architect, and who is specializing in communities for adults with special needs. 
Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. Have you figured out what's not working in your life? Could you use a little help? Join your host, Tamaron, for Let's Figure It Out. Tamaron has had both highs and lows in her life. She uses her experiences to teach you some basic techniques on how to live a better life through health, relationships, and more. Her guests also come from the health and wellness industry, and together, Tamaron and her guests will help you get your life on the right path. Let's Figure It Out airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Hi, this is Dr. Mary Lang taking Terry Aranga's place. We are talking to... Uh, Kathy Purple Cherry, an architect in Maryland who has a son with um, autism and who specializes in housing for the uh, developmentally challenged adult. Uh, I'd like to welcome you back, Kathy, to the conversation. I think we have about nine minutes to close, and we were talking about uh, sustainability for individuals um, long-term in, in these communities. That's right. One of the things that I have noticed is that um, it's an innocent thing, but often some groups that are working on um, housing really for their transitioning youth. So a lot of the focus is really on the younger kids, the kids that are in their 20s or coming into their 20s. And a lot of the groups are parents with kids that are 16, 18, 19, that are really wanting to get something established for their child. And so it's interesting, even a well-renowned university that is doing a residential program was going to build structures that were two floors. And when I inquired as to, well, what does that mean to individuals as they age in place? And so I think it's key for people who are in the development of a young 20-year-old new residential program that they really stop and think about whether they really want their child to be in the same home actually with the same group for the rest of their life, which I think is all the wish of all of us. Um, should our should their roommates still work out, or that in fact that there be varying levels of residential settings within the same community, so it would be my opinion that you know while you might build two story homes or cottages, you definitely want to make sure that you are integrating some full a d a compliant 
structures because no different than us, our children will age. And mm-hmm. so we need to make sure to support them. And, I, and I'd also just, if it's okay, I'd like to let the listeners know that as a firm, we actually also do a lot of school environments. So we are excited to be helping the ELS Foundation on the Center of Excellence. We are the special needs architect teamed with the prime architect on this renowned project in Florida and thrilled to be an integral part of it. We are also doing a large school up in Delaware and a school in Utah and hoping very shortly to be helping a school in Ohio. So um, I do think that as you had asked me, Mary, you said, you know, what happens in these projects? I, again, think that what ha- what does happen is that the parents who have gotten collectively together to, to solve uh, current problems sometimes just sincerely, honestly forget about future, way future, 30, 40, 50 year out goals. And there's always ways to develop things that you don't have to do everything first in. You can just make sure that you cite the property such that additions could be added or that pods could be added that would accommodate the aging in place and ultimately the assisted living environment. Mm-hmm. Well, I before we get off the air, um, I understand you have a website where people yeah. can go uh, to get more information from you. Yes. It, uh, do you want to um, – because I – I um I think it's important when we leave these conversations to give some pla- uh a place for people to get more information obviously your experience is invaluable Sure and- thank you very much I appreciate it um it's you know my firm is located in Annapolis Maryland we do do a tremendous amount of remote work i fly to the sites often we are if it's too remote we are teamed with a local architect once we've either started the project or we come in with the local architect. Um, the site is www.purposefularchitecture.com, just like it sounds purposeful. I think that um, anybody who comes to know me, I'm a faith-based woman, and I definitely do believe that all of my experiences uh, and my role as an advocate for my son have definitely led and supported this journey and given me the kind of cognitive skills that I have to help these environments. And I do believe it's my gift. So www.purposefularchitecture. The firm actually started originally as Purple Cherry Architects, People listening will wonder where on earth Kathy Purple Cherry came from. Purple is my maiden name, and I married a cherry 32 years ago, and thus the Purple Cherry Architects came together. So as we have built the Purposeful Architecture site, we it links back to components of the Purple Cherry site as we are continuing to build it. But if you go on to that site, you will see my 21-year-old son, who is a huge Beatles fan. So you, he will look just like a Beatle when you get onto the homepage. Well, Kathy, I really thank you. I have so many more uh, questions to ask you, and I would like to... Uh, see if you would come back on the radio uh, with me again so we can delve further into this 
uh, challenging arena of, of housing and community for the developmentally disabled. I really thank you very much. You're very welcome. I'd be delighted to. Okay. So we're, do you have the music? Not yet. Okay. So then why don't we say this? Why don't we, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that I'd like to say to the listeners, um, in general, I'm going to assume that the majority of them, Mary, are not you or me, but actually are parents of younger children. And I, as a mother, let me take off my professional hat for a moment and talk about a mother. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that um, the most significant change that needs to happen or will come is going to specifically happen at a federal level. And so I work with my state, and I certainly have um, obviously strongly advocated for my own personal situation and for my son, but to impact the financial situation, whether it translates into actual direct funding or it translates into options to offset um, life funding against life skills colleges. I'm a big proponent of that if our children have the ability to ultimately seek total independence, we need to give them all skills when they transition. And so I'm a big believer in life skills colleges. And if we could work at both our national and our state level to continue to advocate for those types of situations and to get our federal government to consider the funding of our adults to independent colleges maybe we can then bring them out at the age of 25 and they can be tax-paying contributors to the population, not be an economic burden on the states because of life skills support. Well, I couldn't agree with you more because if we do not educate, um, uh, prepare for job opportunities, we will have a a major tax issue and these and um and I can give you an example of what Beacon Day School is doing. We're making uh, gluten-casein-free dog biscuits. We're doing jewelry. We're doing all kinds of things to develop trade um, and entrepreneurial opportunities for these students. Yes. And it's an amazing thing, again, to the parents of younger children. It's quite an amazing thing to see what hap- what happens, at least for my son, in terms of his maturation between the ages of 17 and 21. And when I think about how 17 to 21 has changed and how 21 to 25 will really develop him, that's where we need to be focusing our energies. Right. Well, thank you again, Kathy, and I do look forward to talking with you again in the future. Um, It was a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, This is uh, Mary Lang from Beacon Day School talking with Kathy Purple Cherry, uh, an architect and mom that is serving individuals with developmental disabilities. Thank you very much, Kathy. Very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.